When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. Hey everybody, Matthew Collar along with Declan Goff. And once again, since it is Monday night, we are here streaming. Now in the past couple of Monday nights, we have done Q&As leading up to the NFL draft but since we have the draft it has happened they have a million new players with all of their day three draft picks um Declan has put together a post draft exit survey so he has 10 questions for me to answer so Declan why don't you just jump right into it and if there are comments that you see that you want to bring up throughout uh feel free to read them so Go ahead with your exit survey. All right, Matthew. The first one, pretty basic here. Why do you think so many outlets were so high on the Vikings draft after uh, after it concluded on Saturday? I think that what you do when you try to analyze a draft is you look at where you value players and then where they were drafted. It's the most simple way to do it. And then you add in how those players fit with the team needs. So if you drafted a player that had a really good value, but it didn't make any sense for your team, then of course you, you know, you wouldn't get a good draft grade because you didn't get a guy that made a fit for your team or made sense as a fit for your team. And so with the Vikings, they hit both of these things on the head. Justin Jefferson was often in every draft sim and every mock draft, a guy that was taken within the top 15 to 17. Sometimes he got close to the Vikings in mock drafts and a lot of people valued him as one of the top wide receivers. Some people even had him right behind Jerry Judy as the top receiver in the draft. So when you're able to get someone who is supposed to be one of the top players at their position at 22, that's a very impressive pick right off the start there. And even though he played a lot at the slot position in college, he has the capability and athleticism to develop on the outside, or even if he becomes a slot receiver, that's what Adam Thielen has done for the last few years. He spent a lot more time in the slot than he has on the outside, and it didn't hurt him at all, right? I mean, now today's slot receivers are people like Thielen, people like Michael Thomas. Oftentimes, it's bigger receivers, and uh, Justin Jefferson is not a huge receiver by any means, but he is a playmaker with the ball in his hands, so if he starts off in the slot, Um, You know, they could get him the ball that way, or maybe he develops on the outside. But he has the potential to be a very, very good NFL wide receiver. And I saw Daniel Jeremiah go maybe one step over the top and say he could be even better than Stephon Diggs. I will not go that far uh, right now. And we'll have to see him in training camp and everything else before we decide exactly how good he can be. But the player's ceiling is 
a very, very good NFL wide receiver that you got at the back of the first round. So right there, you're going to get a good grade for that player. And then you add in Jeff Gladney, who was projected around then, but he's a perfect fit for what this team needed. He played in a complex defense at TCU. He was experienced. He, Even though he's not the tallest, he has a great vertical jump, and he's strong, and he's competitive. I mean, he just matches perfectly with his Zimmer corner. And if they left the first round of the draft the other night without a cornerback, you aren't getting an A grade from anybody. You, know, you desperately needed a corner. Mike Tannenbaum of ESPN was on – uh, with you and I, and, and he called it a borderline emergency at corner. I totally agree with that. And then they come out of the draft with a couple of good corners. And, and there, if you look farther down the draft, that's where they got good value and perfect fits too. Ezra Cleveland, some people had him as a back of the first round, early second round. He goes in the late second. He's a great fit for what they need, a tackle. Could potentially start right away and bump Riley Reef inside. Could, could compete at guard or even be down the road. They're starting in very long-term left tackle to go along with Brian O'Neill. You're going to get good grades when you hit those things on the head and get great value for somebody that most projected to be higher. And then Cameron Dantzler, I, I think, was an excellent pick of somebody who dropped because their 40 was not that good. But, you know, last time I checked, this isn't the Olympics where we're running 40s. I mean, it's about football, right? And Dantzler had – one touchdown allowed and five interceptions while playing at Mississippi State against really good competition. So he's a guy that might have gone a lot higher had he just run a little slightly bit faster, 40, so you get good value there and a prospect that a lot of people like. And then day three, I mean, it's all darts thrown at a dartboard on day three. It's guys that your scouts like. You see some trait that you might be able to fit in. And so that's not a huge part of the grade, I don't think. But those first two days, if you're grading those – they hit the nail exactly on the head with what they needed and draft value, and that's why everyone has given them A's pretty much across the board. Who has a better chance to make an immediate impact, Justin Jefferson or Jeff Gladney? I think uh, the answer is probably Jeff Gladney is going to start at outside corner. I would be almost surprised if he didn't. Now, of course, anything can go sideways, but just based on circumstance, you have Mike Hughes, Holton Hill, Jeff Gladney and Chris Boyd, along with Cameron Dantzler, is pretty much your cornerback room, at least the way I would project it. And Gladney, with the amount that he played, he played four years at TCU, and three was like being one of their guys. And, And so you play that much football, you should be able to step in and at least hold your own. I don't think that the expectations would be through the roof for Jeff Gladney to start. It never is for a starting corner when they're a rookie. Um, but he has a chance to play every single down of the 2020 season with the way things are laid out for him. Justin Jefferson, if he does struggle a little bit with certain assignments on the outside, we could see him be more of a role player in his first year. And think about what we saw from Irv Smith, a very promising first year, but he didn't come in and take Kyle Rudolph's job. Like We always set the bar way too high based on what guys can be and don't factor in what it takes to get to that point. And usually it's a full season before they do. But if you look at last year's receivers who came out in the draft and they got the top ones somewhere between 40 and 60 receptions, I think that that's a pretty reasonable expectation for Jefferson considering they don't throw the ball all over the place in this offense and they have a lot of other weapons. So I think Gladney makes the bigger impact, but you know Jefferson could still be an impact player in this first year. 
you briefly answered it there, but kind of give me what your best guess would be for Justin Jefferson's catching line in 2020. We've seen first-round picks like Laquan Treadwell have just one through 16 games. <laughs> and then yeah. we've obviously seen guys like Julio Jones who stepped in right away and were almost superstars. So where do you think Justin Jefferson's line will, would be after the 2020 season? Well, I think the truth for him is somewhere in the middle. I, I, I don't see a Julio Jones type of season. I mean, remember... Uh, Atlanta gave up the farm to get Julio Jones because he is a once in a generation type athlete at that position. And that's not Justin Jefferson. We're still talking about a guy who was picked after a number of other receivers in the draft. And, and that's not to be down on him. That's just to say that when we talk about his expectations, let's not go insane and say he's going to just take on Stefan Diggs's role and be able to do all the things Stefan Diggs did. But can you find a way to use him? Somebody who runs a 4-4-3 and is a really good athlete who could make plays after the catch when he was at LSU, I think those skills carry over. The athleticism certainly does, and the ability to make plays after the catch. So even if he does not catch on perfectly to the types of routes they want him to run and things like that, um, I would expect that he does a much better job than than Laquan Treadwell, and he ends up as getting, I'm just going to say, 43 receptions for 595 yards and let's say a handful of touchdowns, two or three touchdowns. I think that's a reasonable expectation, especially when you have other players who are good. I mean, Tajay Sharp might be able to play a role in this offense. B.C. Johnson really emerged as someone that uh, they should be excited about what he showed them last year. I think his ceiling isn't much higher, but he's going to be a part of this offense. And then Irv Smith is the guy we could really see take off. Kyle Rudolph is still a part of this offense. Delvin Cook. So if you're setting it any higher than – 40 to 45 I think you're probably going a little too far but if he exceeds those expectations then you know you've got something really good long term I believe you asked this question to Courtney Cronin and Sage Rosenfels today on Purple Daily but which draft pick do you think plays the most snaps in 2020 yeah I'll go Jeff Gladney I think there's a chance that he plays every snap in 2020 that he starts from day one at outside corner and goes the whole way tape to tape I mean somebody who uh, has played through injuries before, which you know, it's sort of uh, brutal to say, but that's part of the NFL is can you continue to battle through? And uh, we talked to his college coach the other day on a Zoom call, and he pointed out that Gladney was the guy who sometimes uh, had to, in practice when they had injuries, take reps with the first team, second team, third team, and he just was able to do it because he has a natural durability to him. And so if he carries that durability over to the NFL. He's going to play every snap. Now, the other guy, the, the, the sort of low-key guy that could play every snap is Ezra Cleveland. If he wins the left tackle job and looks like he's advanced there and they want Riley Reef to play guard instead, or if it's the other way around and Cleveland shows that he can play guard and he beats out, say, Pat Elfline, Brett Jones, Dakota Dozier, that group, Drew Samia, if he beats out somebody to play guard – I don't know how they view that yet. And I think it's more likely that he's a left tackle and they kick Riley Reef inside. And they've talked about that internally uh, before. But, you know, I don't know which one of those scenarios they see Cleveland as being able to handle. So let's just say that he wins the starting left tackle job. Riley Reef is playing left guard. Well, that means Ezra Cleveland is your left tackle for the entire season. And, and, and that becomes uh, the guy who ends up playing the most snaps. But I don't see it as Jefferson because I think he's going to be more of a role guy. And I don't mean as like long-term role guy, um, but the, he could even be the number two receiver and only play 
700 snaps if he's healthy the entire season because they're playing two tight ends a lot. They're putting fullbacks in. And Adam Thielen is the one who's going to be out there for 100% of snaps, and they're going to mix in those receivers. Speaking of Cleveland, did the Vikings do enough to address their offensive line needs in the draft? Yeah, I know this was a big point of debate on Twitter.web uh, the <laughs> other day um, with people. I got some tweets of, uh, wanting Rick Spielman fired because he didn't draft this fifth round guard or, or that sixth round guard. And, you know, anytime you get to that point, it's just all guys who are long shots to stick in the NFL really at all. And so I understand why you'd want those, but this is also a team that has developed those long shot players at defensive line. So that's where they focused a little more of their draft capital than on offensive line. But they've also drafted developmental players last year, you know, in Ola Udo, who they really like, and Drew Samia, who I think came a very long way last year. I think by drafting Ezra Cleveland, the answer is yes, because they pick someone who could potentially be your starting left tackle right away. And if that moves Riley Reef inside, then your offensive line looks a heck of a lot better because Reef, I know, is not a guard, but he is so much more talented than the people that they've had playing guard there. Like he's a mauler, he's super strong, like he can get out there and run blocking. So I think that that's a big upgrade from Pat Elfline at guard. And it sort of has this ripple effect by being able to put Ezra Cleveland in if he can start right away. I think that's a bit of a long shot. And it's a lot to ask for a guy who will not have rookie mini camp, who will not have OTAs aside from a virtual version. And then he's trying to get himself in shape by, I don't know, lifting pots and pans or whatever <laughs> around the house. It's not going to be, it's not going to be easy for any of these guys who are rookies, but at very least uh, you know, there's a shot that they could improve it significantly for 2020. I think, more of the improvement is going to come in 2021. And when you look at the offensive line and you have three guys who are on their rookie contract still, I think Brian O'Neill would be in 2021. Yeah, he would be. He, would be, he was yep. picked in 2018. Yep, so you'd have three guys on rookie contracts who you felt you could move forward with. I'm assuming Garrett Bradbury is going to take a step forward. I think that's a good job there. And then you've started to develop other guards. And you can always sign a free agent guard to fill in a spot. Um, they haven't done a great job of it lately, but you hope that you know moving someone like Riley Reef off the books eventually that opens up more space to sign somebody better if you have to. But having those staples in place with Ezra Cleveland here, um, yes, that's a big improvement for what they did on the offensive line. I, I couldn't criticize it because the guy in the third round that they picked was a cornerback that they desperately needed and got really good value on. So where exactly in this draft were they supposed to pick? the great guard prospects. Plus it was a very weak draft when it came to guards. And so the players have to be there in order to pick them. <laughs> right. I mean, it's common sense, but you yeah. can just say all day long, well, they should have picked another guard, but you have to show me who that was supposed to be. And uh, in this case, they didn't have a whole lot of guys later down the draft board that would have been fits for them. Well, I know this is a little bit of a convoluted uh, situation, but do you believe the reports that Trent Williams really didn't want to play here in Minnesota? Mm -hmm. I know the Rapport thing came in on draft day. There was really no following up on it. He ends up going to San Francisco, and he still hasn't gotten the extension that he wants either. So do you believe the p reports that Trent Williams really didn't want to play with Kirk Cousins and in Minnesota in general? Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say because, uh, like you said, there was no follow-up on that. There was no second report that came out with more details of Trent Williams not wanting to be a Minnesota Viking. And maybe it had to do with the long-term contract extension. It's possible that he wants to play this year, prove that he is an elite player, and then be the highest-paid tackle in the NFL the next year. 
that that might be his choice, that he's made enough money in his career where he can kind of do whatever the heck he wants here. And if that was his choice to go to a really good team but not sign a contract extension, if the Vikings said, hey, we want you only if we get an extension from you, and he said no, well, that's not him not wanting to play with Kirk Cousins. That's a business decision and sort of a bet on himself. But that's only me speculating what it could be and where that might have come from. Now, his agent said that's not true. He said it's not true. Uh, It's altogether possible that the team would have put that out there, but I don't really see where they benefit from it. Maybe because they didn't get the draft capital that they wanted. So, uh, you know, if people are saying there, oh, well, you didn't get anything for an elite left tackle What's wrong with you? That might be the thing to put out there is, well, you know, you see, he limited our options to only San Francisco. So that's why we had to take that. But since the Vikings, um, you know, didn't come out with Trent Williams and San Francisco only gave up a fifth and a third, there has to be some truth to all rumors in this case, I think. Of all the day three picks, so the fourth round and on, which one uh, intrigues you the most, Matthew Collar? Well, um, there's a couple of answers here. Do I have to pick one? You can give me two. How about that? Does that help you? Okay. Or does that make things worse? Um, No, I think that helps. So I'll give you, I'll give you two. KJ Osborne from Miami is a really interesting guy to me. I wrote about him at scorenorth.com. But the reason he's interesting is because he could be a punt returner right away. And that gives him a chance to make the team when normally it'd be a pretty stacked wide receiver room, but he has that skill that not too many people have. And trust me, I've watched enough, training camps and Marcus Sherrill's beat out all sorts of rookies who have come in and tried to fight for that um, to know that you got to have experience returning punts to have any shot at being good at it in the NFL. And he was really good at it at Miami. And also a guy that is sort of an overcome the odds guy, a two-star recruit who went to the University of Buffalo, and then he goes to Miami and immediately becomes their captain. So it's somebody that has a unique work ethic, probably a high level of football intelligence that he's going to be able to transfer over. And that always speaks well. Someone like BC Johnson is another great example. It's like he's this year's BC Johnson, someone that no one ever heard of, didn't have unbelievable production in college. But then you see what they can do when they get here with their knowledge of the game and their work ethic, and all of a sudden they overachieve. The other one that I am very interested in, and part of it is just circumstance that he's going to step into, is Josh Metellus, the safety for Michigan. If you think about it on the depth chart, I just put out what the depth chart looks like now for all these rookies on scorenorth.com. But it's funny because Harrison Smith, Anthony Harris, question marks, but I assume since they didn't draft a safety high that they are confident that they could sign Anthony Harris to a contract extension. So it's those two. And then rookies, <laughs> there's an undrafted free agent they signed today, Metellus and Brian Cole, who they got uh, in the seventh round. And, that, and that's it. And Metellus is somebody who played at a high level at Michigan State and played many different positions. He played the deep safety, the box, the slot corner, a little bit on the outside corner. And when he went to the Senior Bowl, he wanted to do the one-on-one drills with wide receivers to prove that he could even fill in a corner if uh, teams wanted him to. So, you know, I I think there's a chance there that he becomes what J. Ron Curse was supposed to be. Now, I always liked J. Ron Curse as a talent. I thought he was a pretty smart guy on the football field. Like he really understood what he was supposed to do after a couple of years of development and had the right mentality for a big nickel type of role, which I think you need uh, in today's game where you see San Francisco is going to use their fullback and they're going to use their tight end. And a lot of teams 
are going to try to emulate that in the coming years after San Francisco went to the Super Bowl. They're going to be doing the same thing that the Vikings were doing last year with C.J. Hamm and Irv Smith. And so if you have that big nickel, then, uh, you know, I mean, you've got a, a chance to defend against some of those teams. And maybe Josh Metellus could become what they had wanted J-Ron to be in that big nickel role. So I'll, I'll take those two guys. But, you know, anytime I hear that Andre Patterson really loved a defensive lineman like uh, DJ Wanham out of South Carolina, I immediately go, okay, <laughs> all right, well, that's probably good for him because Andre Patterson really knows what he's talking about. I mean, he's like the, the secret weapon of the Vikings organization. Why does Rick Spielman – Love him some seventh-round picks. In the last four drafts, <laughs> there have been 13 seventh-round selections taken by Minnesota. I know you're not Rick Spielman directly, but you've covered the last four drafts, I believe, or at least yep. the last three drafts here in Minnesota, Matthew. So why does Rick Spielman love to take so many chances on seventh-round picks? Well, I think it's, for one, they've had, and I don't mean a success as in superstars, but success as in role players. They've had a good amount of it. And even someone like Afadi Adenabo is in line to become a starter. He was a seventh-round pick. J. Ron Kirst was a seventh-round pick and uh, nearly became a, a bigger part of the defense. But I think him and Mike Zimmer didn't see eye-to-eye on some things. And, and he liked to also tweet out his feelings, which probably didn't sit well with the head coach of the football team. So, you know, there were things like that that had nothing to do with what kind of player he could have been had it worked out. Um, and then BC Johnson last year, Stephen Weatherly just got a, a significant contract in Carolina. So, you know, you're talking about a good number of guys who have become role players from the seventh round or the sixth round or fifth round, um, even if they're not superstars. I think once you get past the fourth, then the fifth through seventh, even through undrafted free agents, where they've also found a, a handful of really good players over the years, it's all just in the same bucket to me. I mean, your chances as a fifth rounder might be a little higher than your chances as a sixth or a little higher chance in the seventh, but how much higher are we talking? I mean, not that much. It's all who your scouts just happen to like. It's all who you think might fit in your particular system with their athletic traits or who kind of clicks when they get here or who might have high intelligence to be able to overcome some athletic shortcomings, but all of them fall into that grab bag. And he, he looks at it as, the more darts you have to throw at the dartboard, the more chance you're going to hit something. And uh, over the years, you know, he hasn't always proven to be right. There are some that have gone terribly wrong for them late picks. You know, Rodney Adams, Stacey Coley, we thought, oh, one of these guys will become the next Diggs. And <laughs> obviously that was never going to happen. Bucky Hodges the one year, you know, they've drafted late round offensive linemen that haven't worked out like Danny Isadora. So you know, most of these guys don't work out, but if you get, two or three in a year out of four that you pick, uh, even if you get one that is a difference maker, and all you did was trade down, you, you see kind of how the math formula works. Like all yeah. you did was trade down from a pick that probably wasn't going to work out anyway to another pick or two that weren't going to work out. Um, you eventually increase your odds enough to have a chance to get a couple of guys. So I think that that's what it is. It drives some fans crazy. Why don't you just pick at this pick or whatever else? But I get where the theory comes from. Does Nate Stanley have any legit shot to win the backup job over Sean Mannion? Oh, no. No chance. No. <laughs> nope. No, he doesn't. Because Sean Mannion, people don't understand. Like, Sean Mannion has been in Sean McVay's system and now in Gary Kubiak's system. And even though he's not a guy with any type of ceiling, he's not somebody you're saying, well, someday he could take Kirk Cousins' job. He's not that type of guy. 
but he is highly intelligent enough and professional enough in the way he goes about it and talented enough in his arm strength to go out there and play in four games and win two of them as a game manager in the offense. And look, I mean, there aren't 30 good quarterbacks in the league. There probably aren't even 20 good quarterbacks in the league. So when you're going for backups, if you can't afford someone who's more expensive, like a Chase Daniel, who is on the upper side, or a Brian Hoyer, who's on the upper side of back uh, backup quarterbacks, you have to look for somebody who's on the cheaper end who you could just hope could game manage your way through it. Everyone wants, I'm sure, Jalen Hurts to be the backup quarterback because it's much more exciting. Um, but if you're Gary Kubiak, the number one thing is, can you operate the offense? Because a lot of the throws in a Gary Kubiak offense are just the quarterback having to execute and, and make a throw to a wide open guy. And Sean Manning can do that. Week 17 was far from exciting from watching Sean Manning. They mostly ran. They were trying to just get that game over with as fast as possible. But seeing him in practice, there is, of course, a huge gap between Kirk Cousins and Sean Manning. But I think there's also going to be a massive gap between Sean Manning and Nate Stanley and Jake Browning. That's who he's really competing with. He's really competing with Jake Browning. And he's got a shot to win that job. Jake Browning's got a leg up on him because of a year of experience, but they also know what they have in Jake Browning and have probably decided whether there's a ceiling there or not. So Stanley has a chance to win a a third job and be a practice squad quarterback. And I think if things work out well for him, he could become a Sean Mannion who's a career backup. Uh, Vikings fan 50 wants to know, what's the difference between Laquan Treadwell and Justin Jefferson? Very similar picks, I think almost at the exact same spot. What's the difference between their college careers and their trajectories when they were coming out of the draft? Well, I would say that, uh, A, Justin Jefferson never had a catastrophic injury in college. That's a good place to start. Um, also, the production is is good on Laquan Treadwell's end. He caught something like 80 passes. Justin Jefferson caught 110 on a team that won the national championship and he got his quarterback drafted number one overall. I mean, that's a, that's a big difference. Um, Contested catches is part of it for both of them, but speed is a huge part of Justin Jefferson's game where it was not with Laquan Treadwell with Justin Jefferson. He ran a four, four, three, and that was at the NFL combine at Laquan Treadwell's pro day. I think he ran a four, six, two, and that's at a pro day where you're supposed to be faster because it's your, your home building and you can put it whatever time you want to do it. And there's not as much pressure and anxiety and nerves and all those things. So guys always run a faster 40 at their pro day. And his was in the four sixes and Justin Jefferson was in the four, four. So the playmaking after the catch is probably a big difference there. Um, and you know, is one of the hard things to know when someone gets drafted though, is just, you know, how, uh, they're going to adapt and whether they're going to pick up the offense and whether they're going to pick up techniques that relate to route running and whether they've been doing that for a long time or not. And, you know, I don't know that about Justin Jefferson, but I do know that one of the issues with Treadwell is that if he didn't work out, it was going to be terrible because he didn't have an athletic gift that could sort of make him average. If you draft a guy that runs a 4-4-3, and by some metrics, um, there's a thing called relative athletic scores, who takes your height, weight, 40-time, three-cone, all that stuff, and and puts it onto a 1-10 to scale. Jefferson was the fourth highest in the entire draft. Laquan Treadwell was like a 3 out of 10. So, I mean, there's like a massive, massive difference for uh, what their athleticism was. And so even if Jefferson does not become this master Stephon Diggs-level route runner, he can become somebody that you get the ball in his hands and he can make plays. So I think those are the biggest differences. 
One bonus question as we wrap up here. It's not really Vikings related, but I want you to try, and I know you're not, you have been very high on this guy, but try to paint some sense on why the Packers took Jordan Love in the first round. <laughs> is there any type oh, yeah, of sense no, there? Yeah, I, of course there is. Of course there is. Now, I just don't think he's that good of a prospect. And history tells you that when somebody turns the ball over constantly in college, they're going to do it in the NFL too. And if they're not that accurate in college, they're not going to be accurate in the NFL. I think teams talk themselves into traits and they believe in themselves more than they should when it comes to coaching uh, and their system. And if we do this and if we do that, and, but, but how many quarterbacks can we ever talk about in the history of drafting quarterbacks who didn't have great production accuracy in college and turned the ball over a lot and then became great in the NFL? It just doesn't happen very often. So from that perspective, I don't really like the pick. Uh, because I think he was more of a second-round talent. That's where you take someone in the second, and you hope that you can develop them, and then down the road they become a good quarterback. Um, But you can justify it very easily by saying Aaron Rodgers is not the same 30. Is he 36? He's not the same 36 as Drew Brees 36 or Tom Brady 36. He's an older 36. And, And most quarterbacks do not go into their age 40 seasons like Peyton Manning and Brady and Brees. So we really shouldn't even make that... Uh, the bar and say, we, we now expect every quarterback to play until they're 41 or 42 years old. Um, so you don't ha- know how much longer Aaron Rodgers has. If he only has two more years left um, because athleticism is such a big part of his game and he's had many injuries throughout his career. Uh, if he only has a couple of years left of good play, you believe behind the scenes, then you want somebody who's ready to take over next. And you have to put Aaron Rodgers' feelings aside. I don't even dislike picking a quarterback in this draft. It's really about this specific quarterback that I would question and the rest of their draft. And also this, too, that if you're trying to look far down the road, I think that's overall a good plan for who's going to be your next quarterback. But is it a better idea with someone who's that good to just get the guy a weapon and try to win and go all in and then deal with that problem when it comes up? I mean, Rodgers could play at this level until he's 40 and get you to 13-3 and three records or 10-6 and six records and have you competitive and not have a steep decline, but maybe it's more of just like a like sort of a slow, slower decline. He stays above average for quite some time uh, until he finally retires. That's also a possibility. I think I, I would have, if I'm them, much rather said, Aaron, here's everything we could possibly get you. Here's another receiver. Here, you know, I mean, here's a tight end who can actually play. Uh, <laughs> not another running back. I don't understand right. the running back at, at all. That might be much more egregious of a pick than Jordan Love, but still in a draft like this where there's so many good wide receivers, I, I just have a really tough time figuring that out. I mean, if you're Aaron Rodgers, wouldn't you rather they get – Uh, for you in the first round instead of a a backup quarterback, of course, that that offers nothing in the next year. LaVisca Chenault from Colorado, who in the first year you can run, you know, handoffs to him, jet sweeps. You could throw him bubble screens. You can throw him quick slants and things like that. And then he's a a pure playmaker. Uh, Maybe he gives you 30 or 40 catches and a couple of touchdowns and some yards. Like you, You just need anything from those receivers and they got nothing. So I don't think that anybody in the NFC North got better except the Minnesota Vikings at the draft. Well, it's all part of my elaborate plan to get uh, Aaron Rodgers to wear purple here in 2022. That's my (laughs) elaborate plan, Matthew. You know, you can never count anything out with the Vikings. That is one thing that we always know. All right, my friend, I think that's uh, all the questions we have here today. 
Okay, sounds great. Well, thank you all for taking the time to watch, and we will continue to talk football on Purple Daily 2-4 to four, every single day. We're going to have a lot of fun throughout the summer. Uh, I'll just tease it here. There's a big project that I'm coming out with pretty soon, starting the week of uh, May 4th, so that's going to be exciting for us as well. And uh, we'll continue to look at the draft class, the moves that are to come. The Vikings still have a couple of roster spots they could fill. So we will be on top of it all summer long. And Declan and I will be doing things like this. So we will catch you in the future. Thanks for watching. Football. This holiday season, Peloton's got a gift for you. Get up to $200 off accessories with the purchase of a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. And take your workout to the next level with accessories like non-slip grip dumbbells, a heart rate monitor, cycling shoes, and more. Peloton, motivation that moves you. This limited time offer ends December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.